0: My guest for this special Friday episode is filmmaker and legitimate legend Douglas Trumbull, who designed the visual effects for Stanley Kubrick's 2001, Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters, and Ridley Scott's Blade Runner, among others, as well as directing Silent Running and Brainstorm, which are important sci-fi films in their own rights. He's also spent the last four decades or so expanding our conception of cinema, developing high-speed, high-resolution methods of immersive filmmaking that have changed the way people view theme parks, expanded the concept of IMAX cinema, and led Ang Lee to shoot Billy Lynn's long halftime walk in a revolutionary new high-frame-rate 3D process. Doug chose How the West Was Won, MGM's 1962 Cinerama Epic, a decade-spanning generational tale of the forging of the American frontier. It marshaled the talents of John Ford, Henry Hathaway, and George Marshall, and roped in half of Hollywood, including John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart, Henry Fonda, Lee J. Cobb, Carol Baker, and Debbie Reynolds, among others. But as you'll hear, Doug didn't really want to talk about the movie so much as the Cinerama format and the way that experiencing Cinerama inspired him to rethink movies themselves. And you know what? That's fine with me. So think about this episode not so much as someone else's movie as a window into someone else's process. I think
1: that uh, How the West Was Won, which I, I picked as one of my selections for this talk, is that it was a unique moment in cinema history, in my opinion, and it was made specifically in this gigantic widescreen triple-camera, triple-projector Cinerama process. Yeah. Um, at a moment in history, in cinema history, when Cinerama had opened up and started making more money than all the other theaters combined. And they were just doing these uh, little lazy uh, travelogue movies. But the theaters were running full all the time at premium ticket prices. And there was clearly an audience desire for this kind of spectacle, this giant screen spectacle, which was only enabled by converting a theater, putting in a special screen, putting in special projectors and a sound system. And it was pretty spectacular. And um, it was also in the context of the industry being terrified of television television was eroding theater audiences.
0: Yeah, and so, we should point out for the context of people who aren't old enough to necessarily remember that, I, I remember reading about it as fairly recent history. I was born in 68 and kind of figured all of my obsessions out in the, the mid-70s. Um, 70 millimeter prints were still around, and there was the occasional cinorama screening, as I understand it, in yep. Toronto, but we very quickly that was a part of history. Yeah. And television in the 50s was... Terrible, but novel. It was a tiny screen for the most part. Right. You know, the the, the the screens that we have now, the, the, even the aspect ratio, is going to be completely alien to someone from 1952 looking yes. at a broadcast. Yes. Uh, and Cinerama evolved as this amusement park, essentially an experience that you could have in a movie theater in your own hometown. You didn't have to go to um, right. see this is Cinerama. There was there was probably a theater if you lived in a large enough city. Right. And so. As you say, they were travelogs. They were they were not making movies right. in the conventional sense. Yeah, So,
1: <laughs> How the West Was Won was the first dramatic movie. Yeah, and um, MGM made this decision to do it, and they really put a huge effort behind it. I mean, it's got some major directors, oh, yeah. huge cast of actors, a, a Academy Award winning writer. Um, and it was a spectacle. In retrospect, I don't think anybody would be able to say, and I can't say, that it's a it's a great movie in the, in the terms of Casablanca or cinema or anything else. But the reason I picked it for this talk is that it kind of represents a turning point in the movie business that established the idea of the giant screen, mm-hmm. the wide screen. And it made a huge amount of money. It was very commercially successful. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> subsequently they realized that the three-camera, three-projector thing was driving everybody completely crazy. The cinematographers hated it. The actors hated it. The directors hated it. It was too cumbersome. There was too many technical problems that were interfering with their art form. Right. And, uh, and I was studying all this, even when I was a kid. You know, I, guess, I think I was... Out of the Westwood one came out when I was about 21. Okay. And I was fascinated with this whole thing for some bizarre reason and was reading all about it and reading these stories. And I was very taken with the spectacle of it all. And I thought, well, this, if this is what movies are like, this is really an exciting opportunity. And then for me personally, subsequent to uh, the success of How the West Was Won and another movie called The Wonderful World of the Brothers Grimm, which I didn't think was good at all, um, Cinerama changed their format to 70 millimeter film got rid of the three-camera, three-projector thing and simplified the medium. So it was easier to do, cheaper to do, still giant screen, and it still had that spectacle. And I, as a young guy, got hired to work on 2001. And the short version of my story as a filmmaker was that it was a complete gas working with Stanley Kubrick, you know, who was my mentor, and I was helping him a lot doing my art form, which helped that movie a lot.
0: Yep, I would say so, yes. (laughs) Well,
1: anyway, I'm watching this uh, master filmmaker and I'm with him every day and I'm watching him try to embrace the medium itself and the medium is starting to influence the way he directs movies or directed that movie, Mm -hmm. not all movies but he realized that he felt a, a kind of responsibility to make 2001 how the universe was one, an epic space spectacle for lack of a better term and um in the process of making the movie, he started stripping out all of the previously expected melodramatic mechanisms that even he would use in a conventional movie, over-the-shoulder shots, dialogue, right. plot, exposition. Exposition, all this kind of stuff. It started stripping away because he was onto this very immersive, almost first person spectacle experience. And he felt he he, he said it's consciously. He wanted the audience to feel like they were they could become one of those characters, and go into space, yeah. and have this immersive experience. And that that changed the cinematic language he was working with. It changed the way he told the story, and that just profoundly influenced me as a kid. I mean, here I am. I'm saying, okay, if this is what movies are like, count me in. I want to make movies myself. I went into the movie business subsequently and directed my own film, Silent Running, which we're showing here tomorrow, and. Um, I was shocked, dismayed, horrified, etc., that the movie industry was multiplexing itself into oblivion, in, in a sense, because that original threat of television, that Cinerama was trying to overcome, did not prevail. 70 millimeter did not prevail. And the studios actually became television production studios. Okay.
0: So, well, I mean, MCA famously in the 60s. Yeah, right? so fast
1: forward about. to today, and the producers of television content are the same as the producers of movie content. And the media aspect of it, which I've been completely passionate about all my life, is that the television image quality we have today at home is identical to the image quality we have in movie theaters. It's 2K digital, mm-hmm. which is not as good as 35 millimeter film was in nineteen fifty. And I'm very frustrated, and a lot of other people are frustrated. Uh, major filmmakers are frustrated. I could name them for you. but the point is well, that I can think of a few. Myself. The point is that um, I got carried away with how the West was won and this whole kind of epic spectacle idea, and just became very frustrated and disappointed that the movie industry wasn't headed that way. And so even though I've had this career of doing these visual effects things and solving things and directing movies, Um, I was constantly frustrated that the the medium itself couldn't carry the load of this kind of spectacular, immersive experience I was trying to get to. And it led to my little personal story, which was about the show scan process of 60 frames, 70 millimeter, which was really spectacular, far superior to IMAX. I thought we'd get it going. The management at Paramount, where I developed it, supported the whole thing up to a point. Um, And then the management at the studio changed and they lost heart.
0: It really is that simple, isn't it? It's that simple. It's musical chairs in Hollywood
1: quite a lot continuing to today, and almost any director you talk to who gets the lucky green light to make a movie will tell you that it's very likely that the management of the studio will be different by the time the movie's done. Right. And it's hair-raising. And uh, so that's part of the kind of lack of... uh, kind of technical continuity that goes on at the movie studios they used to be little cities you know where they had their own camera department and their own props department and their own their own it was a, a a studio that was complete from the very beginning to the very end of the movie production process and now they're not they're just holding tanks for uh they don't care what studios or stages they want to rent they go on location they they whatever and uh there's no infrastructure inside
0: the studios that is concerned at all about the medium of movies yeah well I mean even the just the recent surges in 3D development have all been so weirdly competitive and conflicted Uh, there's Dolby 3D which requires glasses that actively distort the image if you turn your head there's uh, the IMAX 3D process has been refined and re-refined and and it's pretty good now Mm -hmm. but there were times there were points when it was the film was sort of fighting the glasses once or twice right um with with um, Showscan, and I'm sure you won't remember this. We spoke on the phone once for something, and I, I have been uh, at the I worked at the CN Tower when Tour of the oh, Universe was there. I actually well. I had seen it and right. experienced it, and it was it was great. Mm-hmm. People don't believe me right. uh, when I explain <laughs> the clarity of it and the dimensionality of it. Right. Um, and w- at what point did you shift away? Did you give it up because it just couldn't be? funded? The, the backing wasn't there? How did it stop? The, the, the
1: story about ShowScan was that we had virtually hundreds of screenings for everybody in the movie industry, including Spielberg and Lucas and all the major studios, all the major distribution companies, all the major exhibitors. And this would have been the, the Screen Actors Guild, the Directors Guild. Yeah, early 80s. And everybody loved it. I mean, it was there was bar none. Everyone thought this was fabulous. The problem at that time was that it was still film. And the cost of the film stock and the processing and the prints and everything was five times a 35 millimeter movie because mm-hmm. it was two and a half times the frame rate and 70 millimeters set at 35. And,
0: yeah. and, the, and people don't realize now with DCPs how cheap it is to distribute yeah, film.
1: Yeah, so there were all those issues that just became a non-starter for the industry. And I tried and tried the best as I possibly could to get the green light to produce this movie Brainstorm, which I had developed at MGM excuse me, I developed at Paramount for the process under orders from the chairman of the board of Gulf and Western that owned Paramount. They, they thought this was the way to go. Yeah. So would the entire film have been showscan or just the... It, would, it was going to have portions of the film in showscan. The whole idea was to show you the difference between showscan and not showscan. Right. You know, kind of the like uh, the Wizard of Oz where it goes from black and white to color kind of thing. And um, unfortunately, the management changed at Paramount. They decided not to do it. I tried to take it somewhere else. I ended up at MGM under really scurrilous management. Got the movie greenlit conventionally after fighting so hard to do it in ShowScan. So that was a big setback for me. It was a very heartbreaking to not make that goal. And then Natalie Wood died, you know, yeah. toward the end of production. And I just went through hell trying to get that movie finished. And I just realized that this is just it's too hard, it's too heartbreaking, it's too difficult, and I really wanted to change my life in some very fundamental way. So I I stopped directing movies, I, I left Hollywood altogether, I sold my house here in LA, and and ended up in the Berkshires of Western Massachusetts to kind of restart myself. And one of the first jobs I was able to get was the Back to the Future ride for Spielberg. Right. And, and I had invented the whole idea of a simulation ride when I was at Paramount. And it had taken hold by that time. And this was a gas. This was like the ultimate immersive movie experience of all time, where you're in this DeLorean car, and you it's like you become a character in the movie, and you enter into the movie and fly through the movie in this hydraulic, kinesthetic, 64-channel sound spectacle in an IMAX dome theater. Yeah, this I never got to do. It was, it was really fabulous, and I was really proud of it. It was hugely su- successful for Universal. They had it in all three of their main parks. And that proved to me that there's a life outside of Hollywood in in the sense that I think there's a very big human desire for extraordinary immersive spectacle experiences, that that's alive and well. And if you jump to the present, Mm -hmm. we're watching this big buzz about virtual reality and augmented reality. I think that's a quest for immersive experiences that people are not getting. They're very frustrated with movies and very frustrated, frustrated with television. And I think a lot of people don't consciously realize that, sure, you can watch a movie on your tablet or your computer or your home TV or your whatever, phone, God help and yeah. what what comes through the limitations of that medium is the story. Character development's fine, plot's fine, conflict is fine, uh, all the conventions of melodrama come through that medium just fine. But it's not immersive and it's not spectacular. Yeah. And I think that's that's kind of the missing component of the movie experience is... is the studios are paying $100, $200 million on these movies that they want to be spectacular. You could name any number of them, but they've been very special effects-driven yeah. spectacles with you know, $200 million budgets. And yet they're being funneled through this really narrow medium of 2K 3D, which has all kinds of horrible, objectionable limitations to it. And every director, not every director, but most of the directors I know who have tried to make uh, feature movies in the present-day 3D standards are very frustrated and realize that the frame rate is one of the culprits because it's just not enough frames per second to keep 3D together.
0: Yeah, well, the last time we spoke, you had said that the the optimal rate hasn't been technically possible on a mass scale, right? You can't get theaters to run a genuine 3D clear screen. Yeah, so...
1: I discovered a few years ago that when the movie industry was transitioning from celluloid to digital, that there was all these wonderful potential built into digital that wasn't in cinema. You never have to close the shutter. You can have screen brightness all the time. You can have any resolution you want, any frame rate you want. The DLP chips in about at least... 20,000 or more installed theaters can go 120 frames a second in 2K right now. Right.
0: Well that's that's what's used for 3D or right, anything.
1: Well, no, the they do they do 3D movies at 24 frames a second and flash each frame three times. Really? So it's 7 it's 72 flashes for the left eye, 72 flashes for the right eye for a total of 144. Okay. And it just completely screws up your
0: nervous system. <laughs> it looks
1: bad, it looks blurry, it looks stroby, it doesn't look real. I
0: can think of a handful of recent digital 3D presentations that I've seen that have really worked and yeah. those were shot generally in 3D rather than posted, posted yeah. Yeah. there are very terrible. few
1: natively shot in 3D yeah. most are post-dimensionalized you can anyhow, tell. I can go on, on about yeah. this whole thing forever because I still I think of myself as a as a filmmaker in, in the most general terms, and you asked me first, I would say filmmaker, sure. whatever that encompasses doesn't matter to me and I've spent a lot of my time trying to focus on how to make the filmmaking process more fun for me and more satisfying as a director, as a writer, because I'm trying to claw my way back to that spectacle immersive experience that we achieved in 2001 in 1968 Mm -hmm. and it hasn't been as good since. Even with IMAX which is still 24 frames a second and now IMAX has gone digital so IMAX really has no more resolution to offer than anybody else. And um, I decided that it was time to really rethink the whole thing. And Julia and I have set up a studio at our home in the Berkshires where we've been privately exploring the future of cinema and uh, trying to get back to the, the, the good old days of how the West was won or, or the best days of 70 millimeter, or, you know, uh, Lawrence of Arabia kind of spectacle. And I think we've done it. We've, we've discovered it. And it's, it's, uh, it's very simple. It's 120 frames per second 4K 3D on a okay. very wide and deeply curved screen. And it's a combination of factors of field of view, a wide field of view, like a 100-degree wide field of view. Okay. It's not possible on your cell phone you. or your home TV or anywhere else. And so if you offer the brightness we really need, the frame rate we really need, and the resolution we really need on a wide screen – you have a, f- an, a a spectacular and immersive experience that then any director can run with and make a movie in this process, and it'll be you know quite a different um, cinematic experience for everyone.
0: What sort of arena does this play out in? Is this a, a refitted theater? How do you? No, well, here's
1: it? here's what we went through. We. Um,
0: I mean, if you if I'm going to
1: see it, where- well, here's the, this is the fundamental problem. All right. And uh, I'm not going to talk about it too much because it's an emerging issue we've developed a new kind of theater. I realized... We, we made this process. We made a demo film, a 10-minute demo film in this technology. And I wanted to go out to L.A. to show it to my pals mm-hmm. and set up a little screening room or something. And I realized, oh, yeah. there's no place to show it. These theaters are terrible. You know, they, they, they adhere to this old convention of the theaters, kind of a flat screen at the end of a rectangular room. Yeah. And the seats are in straight rows. Um, and I realized that there's a real big bottleneck in the design of movie theaters that have lost the kind of um, showmanship that we used to have when, even when screens were small, the theaters were spectacular, because right. they were they were holdovers from the days of vaudeville and live performance.
0: Exactly, they evolved yeah, so, palaces, Yeah, so basically. they
1: were cinema palaces, they called them. And so when you went out to a theater, it was really pretty spectacular, even though the screen was small. And then in the days of Cinerama, they would put in a special installation of this giant screen and three projection booths, and go way out beyond the proscenium arch, mm-hmm. and you'd get this wall-to-wall cinorama kind of thing. And uh, so I became very frustrated, and then I decided, well, we've got to redesign what a movie theater is. And we have to do it in a way that's inexpensive, very easy to do, fast, and uh, we've designed a, a, a prefabricated modular movie theater that you could start installing all over the world by the thousands in a very short period of time that would deliver this experience. And it could start the transformation of the movie business to a much more epic and spectacular experience for audiences. Because the the, the audience in movie theaters is in massive decline. It's not publicly known very well. They try to keep it under the rug. But uh, we're at a 20-year low and still going down because the same old problem that happened when How the West Was One was made is the audience is defecting to downloading and streaming and Netflix and Hulu and everything else that's convenient, inexpensive, easy to use, uh, take it anywhere with you, um, is drawing the audiences away even worse than television did in those Years.
0: Yeah, well just more screens, right? You can watch something anywhere. I mean,
1: watch yeah, watching it on a train, watch it in your car, I mean watch it anywhere. So
0: and people seem to be saving the big screen experience for that you know, like that one yeah, ticket. But what, what they the don't
1: really point. realize is they're not really getting a big screen experience. They're not really getting an, an adequately improved experience because the actual resolution in the theater and on the on the tablet is identical. hmm so I'm saying, well, no, you have to go bigger. You have to think outside the box. You need to increase the frame rate, increase the resolution, increase the brightness, increase the field of view. You've got to do a lot of things to claw our way back to what we had with Cinerama in 1950
0: or 60. A reason to a reason see to. a film. A yeah, a reason, reason to, to go
1: out and make it worth going out. So it's really spectacular. And so we're at this point now where we're, we're very close to getting started with this new industry. And the one component of it that's kind of a wild card, and I don't know how it's going to play out, is that um, Ang Lee came and visited our studio, saw what we were doing almost two years ago now, and decided, well, this is the ultimate way to make movies. And he convinced Sony Pictures to allow him to make Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk at 120 frames 4K 3D. They were, I think, reluctant to do it, but he said, well that's what I want to do, so if you don't want to do it, I'm not going to do it at all. And so they kind of reluctantly agreed and said they just wanted to reserve the right to release the movie in any technology, ultimately, that would work for the most number of theaters and the most box office revenue. And so we're at a point now where the movie will be opening November 11th, I I believe, uh, wide, and they still haven't announced what format they're going to release it in, but there will be five theaters in the entire planet, that are going to show it as it was photographed, 4K 3D, 120 frames.
0: And does that require retrofitting the theaters? I mean, no. What they're
1: doing is retrofitting the projection systems. Okay. They're bringing in these very large laser illuminated 4K Mirage projectors from Christie, that can give you the brightness and the color gamut and the and everything you need to run 120 frames 4K 3D. So it requires two projectors. It's quite an expensive mm-hmm. installation because I think it may be. That the door is propped open a little bit for people to see what a movie can be like when it's made in a tremendously improved quality right. on a on a very large screen.
0: Yeah, we haven't really had that kind of proof of concept yet.
1: No, and I'm I'm I really I'm really grateful and appreciative of Aang, and he he uh, is profoundly affected by the process he's facing right now, which is that the, his movie is not being generally distributed the way he wants. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think it's going to be interesting to watch for what happens because it will start getting its own press and its own attention at these five theaters. Okay. And the pre- the premiere on uh, in October will be... A lot of press will be there, I would assume. Sure. And that'll be the beginning of people in the public realm as well as um, the press to witness how different a movie can be. And then it will go on from there. So... Uh, as I say, I think the door is slightly open now. We're, we're making a little bit of progress. The next progress is going to be to get more directors on board. Because the the thing about change in the movie industry is it's driven by directors. That's why Peter Jackson did 48 frames for the Hobbit trilogy. It was a mistaken... Uh, Direction to go because it looked a little bit too much like a soap opera. Yeah, and uh,
0: they only screened it for the press the first time. Yeah, so there, you
1: know, when that movie, when that trilogy was put in play, and he got the green light to go ahead, he convinced them that this was going to be the greatest thing, and they pushed for about ten to twenty thousand theaters to be equipped to show it at forty-eight frames when it released, Mm -hmm. and they had a preview screening of a, a, a short reel of material at CinemaCon in Las Vegas and got very bad reviews because it looked like a soap opera. Yeah, And this became almost a nail in the coffin of higher frame rates because he just did it wrong. And I like Peter a lot. He's a, he's a friend and a, and a believer that we've got to get better. Yeah, but then Jim Cameron is did as well. Not,
0: yeah, but, but as far as, as Jackson's Hobbit films, that process simply didn't, it was not suited to what he was doing with the camera. At least when I experienced it, a pan would flatten out the image and it would change the perspectives in a way that fought against the eye.
1: Yeah, there's a really complicated series of um, technical (laughs) things that are going on in digital projection that I just sound like a complete maniac when I try to explain it to anybody. And nobody really wants to know the details. I can just tell you that we've discovered a whole new territory which is extremely elegant, low-cost, inexpensive, easy-to-do, that's completely compatible with the whole industry. And the only way we're going to get traction is by a movie like Gangley's movie, getting a lot of positive uh, accolades and showing the movie industry they ought to re- really reconsider it and, uh, and think about how we can transform the movie industry into a much more high-quality differentiation from television and streaming and downloading.
0: Yeah, it's a really new space, isn't it? Just not, not the 124K 3D, but the place that we are now artistically where anything is possible, I mean, in, in uh, at a more refined level than I think it ever has been thanks to the way CG effects can yes, be used. Yes, it's, it's unbelievable. We can do anything. Yeah, but people are there, aren't seeing it properly. They're not coming out to a theater to see it. They're watching it on their phone. Uh, Netflix just purchased, this is one of the most counterintuitive things I've, I've experienced, have uh, at at the film festival, in, uh, Toronto Film Festival, last two weeks ago, I saw a film called "I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House," which is a film by Oz Perkins. Very little dialogue, very immersive sound design, made to be seen in a large theater. Oh. And Netflix bought it, and they're they're releasing it. That's one of their exclusives for the around the world. The only way people will see this if they don't see it in a film festival is. On Netflix, which almost guarantees they won't experience the sound as it was meant to be heard, yeah. let alone the image. Yeah, it's just it made no sense to me. Almost as though someone at Netflix would say, "Oh, we can't have that. We can't let people understand what it is to see a movie in a theater that actually immerses you." Um, yeah, the the, the I ways. think
1: yeah, I think that the issue of immersion is being cluttered up by a lot of misapprehension or misunderstanding of what that really means. And I I just heard a very odd statistic. Uh, just last week Um, because I found out that even surround sound, you know, simple 5.1 surround sound which has been on the market for eons and is built into every Blu-ray disc and DVD disc and everything that only 5-7% to of homes actually have it. It wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, I was shocked that it's so low. And so one would question how much penetration a movie like that is going to have if people can't experience that immersive sound environment. Mm-hmm. My most recent experience with sound has been with this little demo film that we just made was that we're, we're very friendly with Dolby, for instance, and they offered to allow us to mix it in Atmos, mm-hmm. which we did. And we went to L.A. and mixed our little movie in Atmos, but we had to dumb our movie down to a normal 35 millimeter size screen in a narrow mixing room. Right. We mixed it, brought it back to our theater, which has this super wide screen, and it just didn't work the sound space which is completely inappropriate it didn't match the movie at all and we did that again and it didn't match and then we decided well we'll mix it our place with the movie that we're seeing because there's a really weird kind of psycho-visual connection between sound and image
0: oh absolutely Um,
1: and my experience with surround sound has been for years that if you start putting a lot of material in surround speakers in a theater but the screen is small at the end of the room it just disconnects it doesn't Make me feel that much better about the movie. It doesn't fix what's fundamentally wrong. Yeah. So uh, I'm all about sound. I think it's it's just as important as the picture. But you have to do them together. You have to improve both together. Yeah. IMAX has had really good results with sound because they've got a much bigger image. Mm-hmm. In the spaces.
0: And more. their field is generally the rooms are the same scale everywhere, so you can mix for one space mm-hmm. and have that space replicate outwards. But yeah. it's still Appropriate. I mean, any anytime someone says, oh, this, this, uh, this soundtrack has been mastered for... I think there's one now that they're boasting that it's been specially calibrated for smaller studio rooms, smaller... You can play this in a big theater, you can play this in a small room. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, you can, but right. it was made to be played in one of those things. It, d- the director had a specific... Whoever engineered it has a specific purpose in mind. Right. And, yeah, if you only... If you compromise one thing, you're going to change the relationship.
1: Yeah, I mean, I just think that movies... And the reason I picked How the West was one is that it's kind of a good example because they were experimenting with sur- surround sound as well, mm-hmm. Cinerama was. It's a four-track Seven, system, right? Was it seven? Yeah. Okay. Um, so they had five channels across the screen and then two more surround channels. And I think they also had some subwoofers, but I'm not sure. Hmm. Um, but the, the idea is, to my, my, my approach to it all is that movies are an art form and a technology, and a business. And right now, in in the history of cinema, it's very driven by the whole business aspect of it. Maximization of profits, reduction of costs, efficiency, and the compromises that filmmakers have to make aesthetically and creatively in order for their movie to play across all platforms. The movie's got to still make sense when you see it on your smartphone. And so that creates an an, an almost obligatory emphasis on story and all the things that will get through that low-quality outlet. So story is predominant. And very few filmmakers have the opportunity to experiment with um, less story and more epic spectacle because there isn't any epic spectacle possibility out there right now. And I was trying to get to this point about the directors because I think change is driven by directors. I really admire that Peter Jackson really fought for 48 frames. Um, Jim Cameron has been experimenting with 24, 48, 60 frames and higher resolution and all kinds of stuff. Because Jim is probably one of the most technologically astute filmmaker directors there are. Yeah. Know, he writes, he directs, he's a total geek. He's totally into visual effects. I don't yeah. an engineer, he'll build it. He's an engineer, he'll build, he's an engineer. He he'll build it. He's completely fearless. And I really share that uh, feeling that if you want to be a consummate filmmaker, you've got to be pretty geeky to in- understand the medium that you're working in. And sure. When he made Avatar, I was, I was just completely shocked that he took the entire process of directing a movie and deconstructed it into performance capture and post-directing camera shots. Sure. It was amazing, and... The result was that it completely enabled and validated 3-D. It caused the conversion of tens of thousands of theaters to 3-D and digital. And it made more money than any movie in history. And it proved and validated the idea that it is a technological art form and that the audience wants that. They want differentiation. They don't want to see the same old, same old, same old. And that's why we're seeing a lot of these, um, you know... um, sequels are starting to fail because people are saying you know I saw that before and then I saw that before before and before before and by the time you see the sixth episode of Spider-Man or Superman or any number of uh, episodic
0: things you say well it's just the same old over and over again and it doesn't play I wonder if, and nobody buys it. Yeah. I, I was trying, when you were talking about spectacle earlier, I was wondering if maybe that's the reason that the Marvel films do still pull an audience as opposed to most of the other, like the DC failures and things, or that Star Wars could come back because those films require us to invest a part of ourselves. If they work, they work because of our love for the characters and our own history with them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that, like, we're bringing the spectacle. They don't need to build it. We can just see someone in a Spider Man costume and for that, several thousand dollars of wardrobe we have you know i have 45 years of, of attachment to spider-man right and that's what's being used now instead of mm-hmm. uh, some actual storytelling it's it's relying on my own love of the property
1: they, that does work yeah i mean in you know one of my experiences about uh, the kind of theme park world uh, which was the back to the future ride here sure. sure, was that i knew i could rely on the assumption that pretty much everybody or most everybody who came to this ride had already seen the trilogy of films. So they knew who Doc Brown was, who Biff was, what was going on, why the DeLorean could go through time and space. And so there was a kind of shorthand you could put into the movie and just make it this wild, wild ride. And um, that worked really well. And so there is a balancing of people's already established understanding of the characters and the plot and the situation and the whatever with all these superheroes or whatever. So you can have a different balancing of story and spectacle. Mm-hmm. Right? It's okay. But I'm not averse to that idea really. Um, and I think that one of the things that I'd love to do sometime in my life is to make a movie that has uh, almost no dialogue at all. And uh, that's I'd like to get back to something that was like 2001 where Kubrick, who I I thought was just one of the master geniuses of the cinema industry, realized that talk is cheap. And he could think of the movie, which he consciously did, as music, that you could see over and over and over. And it didn't have to be didactic or locked. And it could be open for interpretation. And whatever your religious or spiritual beliefs about life after death or going to another dimension or encountering aliens could be anything and he loved all that he loved to hear other people's opinions about 2001
0: yeah. well this is what I mean and he, it involves you
1: as yeah, much as yeah and he you. didn't he didn't like the idea that, that 2001 would, would lock in on a hermetically sealed story like a Hollywood movie often does they try to say well this is the beginning this is the middle and this is the end and that's an encapsulated story that has no other interpretation right. allowable so it's like hearing a joke you know once you've heard the punchline you don't want to hear the joke again and it's the same for for literature. Um, in visuals, it is more like music. And that's what Terry Mallett does. That's why, it's one of the reasons I, I played with him on Tree of Life, is that he's very um, extemporaneous and uh, interpretive and impressionistic. And I really like that. Yeah. Um, it's that not the sense. only way to go, but I've been trying to talk Terry into looking at this film process we've been developing, because I think he'll really love it. I'd
0: love to see what he does with something
1: like well, that. Well, you're welcome to come and see what we're doing, because we have the only screening room right now on the planet that does it, and we're trying to find partners and you know business relationships so we can start getting this thing out.
0: Yeah. Well, that would be lovely. Um, the last question on the podcast is also always the same, which is, I think you've already answered it, but what if this film has worked its way into your creative DNA or your your approach? And, and I think you've... Pretty well, it.
1: one of the things that's in this is the box set, right? The Blu-ray, yeah, with the two versions. Does this also have the smile box? Yeah, it's at the back. No smile box, but there's another hidden thing in here. It might be on one of the one of the discs. It was in the box set that I got, okay. which is called the Cinerama Adventure. Ooh, it's it's an, hidden. I don't know. About it's it. either another disc, or you would find it on another side, or a like a hidden menu. It's like it's almost impossible to find it. This guy Dave Strohmeyer, who was a completely passionate. Cinerama historian made this two-hour documentary film about the history of Cinerama and that whole period of time of transition in the movie industry from television to movies and how Cinerama worked as a business and interviews with studio executives and directors and writers and actors and actresses. And it's a fascinating uh, kind of global picture of what the movie industry looked like in the in the sixties when okay. that movie was made. Oh, that's great. I'll find and it. I really recommend you track it down. If it's not in here, it might be it's in a it's one of the box sets and it's called Cinerama Adventure. Okay. And it's a just a terrific history of movies. It goes all the way back to Vitarama which predated Cinerama. It goes back to Abel Gantz and the triptych movies that he made. Right.
0: That's the closest I've come to a Cinerama experience of the only time I've seen a multi projector. Yeah. presentation yeah. was Napoleon and that would have been in 1980, I want to say 1987 when the Coppola Restoration came out
1: yeah. but imagine that that actually happened around the turn of the century
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, and then it was dormant for
1: 80 yeah.
0: years
1: yeah, uh, the technology kind of caught up with it, and anyhow I just think that that's why I thought this was kind of a pivotal moment in cinema history that was really admirable for the fact that they tried to do something that had never been done before yeah, and they and it was very successful economically. It just was too technologically burdened, and I think in the heyday of Cinerama, I think there were maybe 54 theaters around the world that did Cinerama that installed the systems. And then I found out in this documentary that they actually made portable Cinerama systems in tents, oh. took them all over Europe, okay, and even into Russia. And then the Russians copied Cinerama and made a, a Russian version of Cinerama and went all over. It's really quite a story.
0: My thanks to Douglas Trumbull, who is one of the few people I've ever met who changed the way the movies work. And he would, of course, like you to rethink your concept of cinema by going to see Ang Lee's Billy Lynn's long halftime walk in theaters now. Thanks also to Claire Van Europe. She knows what she did. You can find Doug on Twitter at DH Trumbull, but be advised that he has tweeted exactly twice, the last time in 2012. I live in hope. And you can find How the West was won on Blu-ray and DVD from Warner Home Entertainment, and available for sale and rental on iTunes, and for rental on Google Play. But to shore up Doug's point, only the Blu-ray comes even close to capturing the intended presentation and experience. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, mcast and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, that would be very kind of you. This week's call sign is free to dream, free to act. Thanks for listening.